This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. This morning's reading of God's Holy Word from the Old Testament will be Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This morning's reading from the New Testament and the passage for our sermon will be Hebrews chapter 10, 1 to 18, if you would turn there with me. Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me? In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. 
Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Good morning. We're continuing our study in Hebrews, and we find ourselves in chapter 10. And as we continue, um, we're just excited to continue to see Christ spotlighted and lifted up as the writer of Hebrews does so well. But just before we dive in, let's take a moment and pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you. We come in your house. We gather here. We gather on your day, and we gather under your word. Lord, we know that we need you. We need you every hour. And so we pray that you would minister to us within this hour. We pray that you would use your word to empower, to strengthen, to equip, to convict, to change. Lord, that's our prayer, that we would be changed, that we would be made more and more into the image of Christ daily through the work of the Spirit in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for what Christ has completed. And Lord, we, we celebrate that word. His coming in the flesh, His dying on the cross, His resurrecting, His ascending, and yes, His coming back. And so, Lord, we long for all that Christ provides. We pray, Lord, that we would be fed this hour. I pray that You would use my voice, Lord, that I would say nothing more nor less than You've given me to say, but that I would be faithful to Your Word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. In my house, next to my garage, I have a a cement walking path. It's by the side of my house, and it leads uh, to my backyard. This is a path that we intentionally put in, but it is a path that requires daily, or actually I should say yearly work, upkeep. It requires uh, spraying and sealing of the stone every year. I was told when it was installed that if I don't do that, the stone would begin to deteriorate. The weather, the, the abuse of the, of the elements would begin to erode the stone. And so therefore, I had a yearly duty to go out and to seal the stone every year. Unfortunately, I'm not as faithful as I need to be. And I've watched the stone gradually change color in some ways to deteriorate. And therefore, I've worked extra vigorously, sometimes twice within a year, putting sealer on to make sure that I'm upholding this stone that we care about so much in the sense of the path that it provides for us to walk on. The bottom line is we all have those things in our lives that need attention, don't we? Those things that require upkeep, those things that require our due diligence. One theologian asks some very important questions regarding our attention. He asks this question, do you know what needs your greatest attention? What needs your greatest attention? He goes on to ask these questions. What keeps you from drawing near to God? What keeps you from drawing near to God? What keeps you from praying? What keeps you from doing these things that are about drawing near and being in the presence of God? He finally asks, what is the primary reason that when you do pray, you live in fear? Or an anxiety that God either won't hear you, or if he does, he won't answer it the way that you hope. What is it? 
What is it that needs our attention in all these matters? He answers with one word. Sin. Sin is what keeps us from drawing near to God. Sin is what keeps us from praying. Sin is what ultimately acts as fear in our lives because we recognize our need for perfection, our need for purity. Friends, in our text this morning, we see Jesus, the all-perfect one. So far in the book of Hebrews, we've seen Jesus as the better priest. We've seen Jesus as the better covenant. And we've seen Jesus as the better sacrifice. Now in chapter 10, verses 1-18, through we're given a summary of these themes, all placed together side by side to show us the significance of Christ and the way He upholds us. The way He cares for us. The way He provides for our deepest and greatest need. First, we begin to see in our text the imperfect shadows of the past. This is a reference to the Old Covenant. Look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead, the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. There's a phrase here that's used, the shadows. This, this word is key, this, this idea of the shadows of the law. What the law has prescribed, what the law has demanded. What is a shadow? A shadow is a, defined as a, a pale reflection. A, a shadow lacks full definition. A shadow is a substance, and it can act as a good guide, but ultimately, it is not a substitute for the real thing. A shadow is not the reality, but it looks forward to that which is to come. That's what a shadow does. In verse 1, we read that the shadow of the law cannot provide the good things to come. Instead, the true realities are those things that provide which is good. Now, as we begin to think about the shadows of the Old Testament, Things like the tabernacle come to mind, this tent of meeting. Things like the sacrifices and all the ceremonial washings and cleansings that the, that the Levitical book and code demanded. We understand that these were actually for the people's good. These shadows actually revealed important truths about salvation. Pastor Eric Alexander explains them as three things. He says it explains the gravity of our sin. When they would see the sacrifices, they would say, yes, that's the gravity of sin. Blood had to be spilled. Death was required. It would teach about the righteousness of God, that God was holy and pure. The tabernacle had the separation from the holy place to the most holy place. The righteousness of God must be protected. Or how about the necessity of atonement? Clearly, the shadows of the Old Testament pointed to all these truths. That's the good things that the shadow did. It showed us the holiness of God. It showed us our own sin and the need for atonement. But the writer goes on to point that the shadows were unable to do other things. The second half of verse 1, it says it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
The sacrifices that were done again and again and again. The blood that was spilled there at the altar. It could never make perfect those who draw near. Then he gives a list of reasons. He goes on to say, otherwise they would ha- not have, they would, I'm sorry, otherwise they would, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin. He's saying that rhetorically because they do. Their sin is ever before them. Sacrifice after sacrifice is made. They're constantly being reminded of their sin. That's what he says next. He says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Again and again, they're told of their unhealthiness, their uncleanliness, their sinfulness. And then he makes the summary point in verse 4. He says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sin. So while the shadows of the Old Testament did good things to show us our need of a Savior, to show us the holiness of God, to show us the perfection of God, the shadows of the Old Testament were unable to truly atone for our sin. See, the point is, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sin. Don't miss that this morning. As much as the Old Testament saints were following the code and doing all that was required, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't ultimately what saved them. It was impossible to save them with the blood of animals. See, the writer is pointing out there's a problem with the shadows. They're not the reality. The shadows really aren't ultimately what can save. And therefore, the good things of the reality are not available in the shadows. The Old Old Testament sacrifices, they could never completely and perfectly save. They could never truly deal with sin. There were limitations to these Old Testament sacrifices. In verse 1, it talked about the fact that they could never make one perfect. They only provided an imperfect cleaning. Number two, it talked about the, in verse two, the remaining consciousness of sin. They ever reminded us that we were sinful because they had to happen again and again and again. We were never clean. And through this repeated reminder, this required every day and every year of these sacrifices, the fact that we are unclean. As it says in the Old Testament, it can never make perfect those who draw near. But verse 4 reminds us it is impossible. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to do this. Let's think about this for the moment in our own practical lives. We're not out sacrificing animals, at least I hope we're not. But we do sacrifice unto God. How many of us today try to sacrifice unto God? We try to give more or do more in a sense, to make up for what we've done wrong. We can do this kind of psychologically in our head. We'll we'll write a bigger check or we'll attend more services or we'll be more diligent about getting up and doing our devotions. We do these things to, in a sense, earn favor with God. But according to our text, our efforts, just like the blood of bulls and goats, could never achieve this. Your efforts could never achieve the satisfaction of God. Why? 
because we're sinners. We're impure. We're in need of a Savior ourselves. And you know what? No matter how big of a sacrifice we make, a bull, no matter how many goats we provide, so to speak, in our lives, they'll never atone. Only Christ can do that. And that is exactly what the writer tells us has been offered. Look at verses 5 through 12. The writer of Hebrews goes on to explain where our perfect help comes from. He introduces us to Christ in verse 5 when he says, when Christ came into the world. He's making a turn here. He's saying, the things of the past, the shadows of the past, they can't save you. The blood of bulls and goats can't save you. But when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. See, all these shadows point forward to the perfect sacrifice. They're pointing forward to Christ and his incarnation. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Christ coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. His body would be the sacrifice. Jesus, the perfect, sinless Savior who came and lived a sinless life. For what purpose? To die for sinners such as us. We notice this in verses 6 through 7 where Jesus explains God's plan and God's will is exactly what Jesus came to fulfill. He says, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written in the scroll. Interesting enough, he's actually quoting Psalm 40 here. A Psalm of David where David is writing and talking. And David is really, in a sense, prophesying of what the Messiah would do. And here it applies as the writer of Hebrews takes it and applies it to the words and the life of Christ, where Christ says, I have come to do your will. We remember Jesus in the garden when Jesus is praying the night he was betrayed. He prayed in that garden, not my will, but your will be done. Humbly, willingly, going to a cross he didn't deserve for sinners such as us. See, verses 8 and 9 help us to understand this will. It says in verses 8 and 9, And when he said above, You have neither desired or take pleasure in sacrifices, or in the offerings, or the burnt offerings, or the sin offerings. These were all offered according to the law, and yet they did not satisfy. And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the old to establish the new. He does away with the past to establish that which is better. See, the idea here in these verses is that it's not simply about sacrifice. It's about a willing sacrifice. I, I like what uh, Pastor Edward Donnelly says. He says, the sacrifice of Christ was willing, unlike the animals who were being dragged to the altar. You can almost envision it. The lamb being dragged to the altar to be slain. That wasn't Christ. He went willingly. Remember what the Gospels tell us, that, that he was quiet. He didn't even offer a defense for himself. He willingly went to the cross on our behalf. See, all of the other offerings, they were not satisfactory because they could never atone as Christ can and has atoned. 
In Philippians chapter 2, we have that great passage where it talks about Jesus humbling himself. But it talks about it in verse 8, specifically of Philippians 2, that he was obedient to the point of death. Why? So that he could be our sacrifice. And by doing this, by being our sacrifice, Christ does away with the old and he ushers in the new. Christ ushers in the better. In the old, it was only the high priest who was able to have access to the holy place. But ultimately, because of Christ, we all have access. It goes back to that question about prayer. What keeps us from prayer? Sin. And yet what is silly is that Christ has taken care of our sin by being our sacrifice. Therefore, we can come boldly to the throne, we're told. We have access to God. The old has been replaced with the new. And this, according to verse 10, this sacrifice was done once for all. See, in making this point, the writer is offering us really a comparison of the old and the new. He does this in verse 11 and 12. I draw your eyes to the comparison. In verse 11, he talks about the fact that Jesus sits while the priests stand. Nowhere in the most holy place was there a seat for the priest to sit down. No, they constantly had to be at work with making the sacrifices. But we're told in heaven, Jesus takes seat at right hand of the Father. And he's making intercession for us. Notice the difference. The priest of the old had to continually work and work and work, never ultimately satisfying. Because all they were offering was the blood of bulls and goats. But Jesus, who offers himself perfectly, once for all time, is seated at the right hand of the Father at the ascension. And Jesus offers this one sacrifice while the priests offer continual sacrifices. So church, I point this out to you. We have the perfect, one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Why would you ever think you can add to it or that you need to add to it? Our satisfaction is found in Jesus. That's the point the writer is making. See, Jesus provides a perfect and a complete salvation. And that's what he goes on to express in verses 13 through 18. He he expresses this in a variety of ways. First of all, because what Jesus has done, his atoning work, he's done this once for all time, not to be done again and again and again. And what has this bought us? Well, according to verses 12 and 13, he is at the right hand of the Father. Notice this, verse 13, he's waiting for the time until his enemies should be made his footstool. This is an important point because Jesus has already completed what was necessary for our salvation and now he is in heaven waiting to make his enemies his footstool. The idea there is this crushing of the enemies. We get the idea of crushing from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The NIV actually captures it well when it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God uh, cursing Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Hear this. He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. Or how about Romans 16, verse 20? 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. These are truths and promises that we have because of the finished atoning work of Jesus. Hear this, church. Your enemies have been destroyed. Who are your enemies? The world, the flesh, the devil, death itself. All of his enemies will be crushed under his feet. And this is the good news that Christ provides once for all for his people. And as if this weren't enough, we're also told in verses 15 through 16 that he empowers us with the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. This is what's different from the old. In the old, they had outward cleanliness. But now in the new, we have inward cleanliness. We've been given new hearts. This is the promise of the new covenant, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the change that he provides for his people. Not only will our enemies be destroyed, but we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. After all, isn't that what we prayed in our confession this morning? That that we would be empowered to live out our sanctification, to be dying to sin and living to righteousness more and more every day. He doesn't leave that up to us. He empowers us by writing the word inside of us and filling us with his Holy Spirit. This is the promise of the new covenant. And yet if that were not even enough, he then gives us assurance and a security of complete forgiveness. Look at verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Friends, what good news that is. I'll think of all the things you've done wrong just this week. And he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He goes on in verse 18 to say, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We don't need any more offering because Christ has satisfied through his death all of our sin. See, we have no need to try to make up offerings and sacrifices of our own. Christ has already atoned. And Christ is the one who's fulfilling the will of the Father by providing himself on the cross to save us completely. Church, do you understand that you are perfectly and completely saved in Christ? If you do understand this, how should it affect your worship? How should it affect your prayer life? How should it affect the way in which you live your daily walk with him? It should change us in every way. I draw your attention as we close back to one verse that I want to highlight. Verse 14. It says in verse 14, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, we have an absolute assurance of the sacrifice of Christ. Christ went to the cross. Christ died for our sins once for all time. And by doing this, hear what the verse says. We are made perfect. Not will be, not hope to be, not might be, but we are made perfect by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Think how foreign that sounds to your ears. You're perfect. 
Now, some of you may be less, less, less surprising, right? But for some of us, that's absolutely amazing that we're perfect, perfect in Christ. And yet it also talks of the process. The process is this. While this process itself is working out slowly in our lives, the Holy Spirit is acting as a witness, writing the law on our hearts, empowering our ability to die to sin and to live into righteousness. And so what should this do? This idea of being perfect and the process happening daily in our lives, it should provide confidence. It should provide confidence in every aspect of our being. To know that we are saved and secure, not because of what we have done, but because of all Christ has done for us. Friends, in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, we've learned a few things. We learn that Jesus sits while the priests stand. We've learned that Jesus offers a sacrifice once, but the priest offered again and again and again. We've learned that Jesus' sacrifice actually removes guilt while the a sacrifice of the priests do not. We've learned that Jesus offers moral inward cleaning while the priest only offers outward ceremonial cleaning. And we've learned that Jesus sacrificed himself willingly while the Old Testament had to drag their animals to the altar to be sacrificed. What does all this teach us? It teaches us that we have a complete Savior who offers a complete salvation. And finally, I draw your attention to verse 10. Hear the word of the writer here. He says, By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We will have been. Because this happens once for all. And the bottom line is, Jesus' body is what saves. Jesus' body is what secures Jesus' body is the Lamb of God. Praise God for the salvation that has been given and granted to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters as we close this section of chapter 10 and as we're reminded that it's not the amount of our offerings or the amount of our daily sacrifices that earns our right to be with you, but ultimately the perfection and sacrifice of Christ. So Lord, we are a people most humbled, recognizing through and through that we have been gifted the greatest salvation ever, a salvation that is absolutely complete and secure, a salvation that has been gifted to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.